Welcome to Urban Ed Voyage, the educational podcast that invites you to embark on a transformative journey into innovative education within urban schools. Whether you're passionate about education, an advocate for innovative approaches in urban schools, or simply curious about the possibilities of cutting-edge learning in urban settings, Urban Ed Voyage is your gateway to understanding the phenomena of innovative education. Join us on this enriching journey and let your imagination be drawn to the extraordinary possibilities of modern learning in urban environments. This week's guest is Maywood Center for Enriched Studies Principal Gabriel Duran. I had the pleasure of meeting Gabriel seven years ago when he was selected as the first principal of MESAS. Gabriel's passion and commitment to creating a rigorous, culturally relevant learning space for our Southeast Los Angeles scholars is unmatched. Six years later, Gabriel and I co-facilitated a climate and culture workshop for LAUSD principals. It was a smashing success. Gabriel was an obvious choice to be the first guest on the Magnet Minds podcast. We are fortunate to have with us today Maywood Center for Enriched Studies Principal Gabriel Duran. Gabriel, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good and nervous at the same time. <laughs> you nervous? No, never. Yes, believe it or not. You want to make sure you are of service or have some insight. Okay, well, you, you give off the perception that you're always in control, so there it is. Okay, so let's begin by maybe you sharing a bit about your background and how you became a principal. Like, what inspired you to pursue a career in education? So um, <clears throat> I was a runner in high school, and then uh, I went away to college to, uh, and I came back. Hold on for a second, like a runner track, right? Like not a, like a was, runaway. <laughs> no, not a runner. Okay, I just want to be clear. <laughs> no, I was a cross-country and a gotcha. track runner. I was a miler, and I was actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, eventually I came back home and uh, just needed to pick up my studies at the community college, and I found a job with the city of Carson in their Parks and Recreation Department. And uh, before you knew it, I was organizing the youth leagues, I was mm-hmm. organizing camps, I was organizing, coordinating any special, little special events um, for, for students, for mm-hmm. kids after school. And one of the things that I found out is that it was fun to organize, but like when you were around the kids, it was a lot more. Mm-hmm. So that's when I changed my major. It's like, hey, maybe I want to be a teacher. You know, maybe okay. I don't want to be a business person. And gotcha. so uh, the introduction to just being able to organize an event, a league, mm-hmm. and then seeing the joy of kids was powerful. But I found that the interaction was even more. And that's what led me to change to a liberal arts uh, major and eventually start teaching in elementary. Gotcha. Yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of principals have similar experiences. I was a youth camp counselor. That was my first experience with organizing and working with students. So in my experience um, as executive director, I've learned that successful magnet programs have both a positive climate and a positive school culture. I mean, you were fortunate enough to start a, to open up your own school and build your staff. Hiring a staff was the easy part. Establishing a positive school culture is not. How were you intentional in building relationships and developing systems that led to Mesa's positive school culture? Yes, uh, I thought a lot about this question, and I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about being fortunate to open up and select your staff mm-hmm. as being the easy part, but actually that was the hardest part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, 45 spots, uh, teaching positions, 
and we had over 100 applicants. So the difficult mm -hmm. part was, one, not dismissing any applicant. Uh, two is interviewing them and filtering out who would be the one. And so that was that was time consuming, but eventually, you know, led to uh, being able to select a few teachers, you know, here and there, key people. Because what happens is when you first open up a school, you know, you don't have a staff. It's right. just you. Right. Uh, nobody comes along until you actually open up. And so just being able to, you know, do the background on the, on the staff, selecting people that were coming from other magnets, the reason why they were coming to other magnets. But more importantly, I had to fight against you know, Maywood, mm -hmm. you know, because there is Maywood Academy. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, wait, uh, how can you turn Maywood Academy into a magnet? And the answer is, no, this is a new campus. Right. And so when people came along and they started to see, the first question was always like, what's the CES? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as the Center for Enriched Studies, how are you different than a, you know, you know math and science or business major, uh, I mean, uh, focus. So that's where a lot of the work began as far mm -hmm. as establishing that culture of the school, of thinking of it as like, we are going to offer as many electives as possible. Mm -hmm. And so once people bought into that, it's like, what other things besides your single subject credential mm -hmm. can you add? Uh, you know, I, you know, you're an amateur photographer, and could you teach an elective of photography? So finding those key people with key talents was critical. Mm -hmm. And I think it's ironic. We were just talking about our teacher who raps about, you know, the emergency drills and right. uh, uh, makes uh, rap videos with the students about school. And it, that was that's a science teacher who brings that the elective of, you know, being able to integrate the audiovisual arts mm -hmm. into our program. As far as culture goes, I think uh, culture is the uh, heart of the school community. Uh, and it begins uh, with everyone agreeing on what your mission and vision is. Uh, once you have that mission and vision, for us, it was more like, what are the core values? So, you know, the district has this thing about be respectful, be responsible, uh, you know, things like that. So we said, okay, let's add the scholarly to it. Mm -hmm. And could we live with those values and not make it about rules? And I think that once we focus on the mission and vision, and then we have those core values of being safe, responsible, respectful, and scholarly, mm -hmm. uh, we can begin the process of, like, what is the school going to look like? But for me, uh, it was more about how can I do this every week mm -hmm. to build the team? But then how can I do activities that will be done with staff that then can carry over to the classroom? And that's the hard part. Because whatever you celebrate with your teachers, you want your teachers to celebrate with the kids. So if one of them was being uh, was about making a difference, the difference, the weekly difference award, we honor a teacher, we honor a classified staff member, and then we wanted them to do the same thing in the classroom. So making that a part of your weekly process was, you know, you know, difficult, challenging, but I think that that's what led to us building the culture that we have, not having 25 rules, but having four core values. Going back to the mission and vision, and of course, recognizing that you know appreciation week is not just when it calls for, mm -hmm. but is an ongoing basis. Yeah, that that mission and, and vision statement is is so um, so important, so so foundational. And I think a lot of uh, principals they don't um, consider that, or they 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 you know they're placed at a school that maybe there is no mission and vision, and then they're trying to build a culture, but there's no basis for it. So it's really important that that principles do really truly explore the whole mission and vision. Vision. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, uh, and, and that's the one thing is that as a new school, you know, you have to repeat that mission vision. And now what I think about is, you know, what could a new principal, I mean, a new administrator, a new school site do? And for us, it's about, you know, our, our mission is about, our vision is about having that intellectually safe environment. 
you know, it sounds very like, oh, that's what's so hard about it. But what does it look like when it's in action? <laughs> so I think that as a, as a new administrator or anybody who takes over something that was already there, it's really about understanding that how do you add to and make that public on an ongoing basis, not mm-hmm. with just your staff, but with the entire community, including parents. But you, you've mentioned three different stakeholders, which I think is very important. It's like, you know, in the district, we like to talk about triple tracking. That's kind of what you're doing with your teachers, with your students, and then with your community, making sure the same message is out to all three different stakeholders and that you're modeling appropriate behaviors and with all three and expectations. So thank Correct. you for that. Mm-hmm. So Mesa's has already gained a strong reputation in such a short time. There are well over three times the number of students on the waiting list and the spots available. In your words, what makes Mesa's program successful? I, I think um, that the key is always, you know, what's, uh, we all have a single plan for student achievement, the SPSA. Uh, and then, of course, we have, you know, at the secondary and, and now uh, at the middle school as well, the WASC accreditation. <laughs> and then, of course, you have all these other different things. So one of the things that we focus on uh, as an example is when uh, the district, pa- uh, the Board of Education passed uh, uh, a board resolution that said that by 2025, um, every one of our schools would have a computer science education for all their students. So we know that that's coming. So then we look at, okay, what's our WASC accreditation say that we have to do, you know, the next time they come around or mid-year cycle. But then we look at our SPSA, <laughs> right? And then how does this idea of every kid having computer science fit in? So rather than just saying, okay, let's offer a course for our middle schoolers because, you know, the board says by 2025 we're supposed to have it, we kind of looked at it long way uh, and, and, and long, excuse me, long term in the sense of, okay, how does establishing a computer science pathway lead to the, the high school level? Because there are classes that will, there are credits for, high, uh, for the, um, your high school uh, math requirements as well as your science. So one of the things that we did is we established that pathway where, you know, our, all of our sixth graders, they get a class, um, and it's robotics. We introduce them to robotics, and we use that as, as an entryway, which leads to seventh grade computer science discovery. So every single middle schooler gets programmed. They all get the same courses. So that's an easy pathway. Mm-hmm. The thing for us is come eighth grade, we introduce them to programming. So students have that chance to take the programming, and then we lay out, okay, in ninth grade, you're able to take a computer science uh, exploration. You can take uh, that that's part of the G requirement. Or you could take the AP uh, computer science principles, which is part of the D requirement for the A through G requ- uh, classes, or the science requirements. So when students see that, they see, okay, I, this would be an option for me. The thing is, now you write it with your technology plan and say, how do I incorporate this? And then you go back to your SPSA and say, okay, what is it in my SPSA says that I have to do with math? So you kind of align it, and then you look at your WASC accreditation and says, okay, WASC is asking for us to have these electives, these pathways. So that's a way in which we can, you know, uh, reach out to our student body. I use that as an example because anytime that you add something to your program, you have to look at it as how does it fit into what you already have as a school plan. So if AVID, you know, our third year, we looked into AVID because we felt that that was a group of students that needed, our BC students. Okay, how did it align to what we already had? And so if it doesn't align, I think you're just doing piecemeal, mm-hmm. which leads to you know disconnect, mm-hmm. uh, which leads to nothing that it builds upon it. Right. Because in order for, for us to be able to have an AVID program, a computer science pathway, an art, visual, and arts performance you know, pathway, you need to lay out what's gonna happen in each of the grade levels. Now, granted, I have the benefit of having middle school and high school, 
But the thing about it is, if, I, if I'm just at a middle school magnet, I can say, okay, how does this build to where my students might feed into? So that's the success. The success is really about students knowing what they can have, then they talk to their friends, and then, believe it or not, it's really, compu- it's really social media. It, it, it sounds like you guys have uh, thought long and hard about like, the development of your own um, strategic plan that sets goals um, for, for the students and, and for the years to come. And that just reminded me a lot of uh, um, like Superintendent Carvalho and the strategic plan within LAUSD mm-hmm. is that this is what we're about. This is who we are. These are our core values. Um, and everything should, uh, should, should branch from that. And you and your foundational documents are your your single plan for um, SPSA, and also when you looked at the WAS accreditation. So that's your that's where you that's your grounding, right? Correct, always. Great. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you in here is that uh, like I've heard and actually witnessed firsthand that you have taken some unconventional approaches to real issues. So talk to me about one in particular. What is the real churro story? <laughs> that is funny. It's, it's funny that after, you know, seven years, people still remember that churro story. So the churro <laughs> story just comes down to is in the beginning, uh, it was difficult to recruit students. Part of it was the middle schoolers. You know, many parents were apprehensive in our community. Maywood, you know, Southeast L.A., Maywood, Cudahy, Hunter uh, Park, Southgate, um, the city of Bell. And the, the idea was, like, how can you put middle schoolers with the high schoolers? You know, they're going to shower together. They're going to be bullied. They're going to all of this. So, you know, while, you, while we produced these beautiful handouts that explain how we were going to, you know, do all the safety precautions and, and what we were going to offer, um, the churro story is simply I wanted to speak at the local church, and they did not let me. They told me I could stand outside and pass out flyers, but I could not speak to the uh, church uh, members. So one day I was there passing out my flyers, and so to my left was somebody selling champurrado and, and hot chocolate, and on the other side somebody's you know selling churros, and I thought, how ironic, you know, you can get your 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 drink, your magnet uh, application, and then get a churro while you're at it. <laughs> so when we finally did accept our students, when we brought brought the first group of students, we each gave them a churro. <laughs> it's uh, kind of symbolic of like you know we're grateful you were here. <clears throat> which kind of leads me back to, you know, some things that, that we always have to do as far as feeding our, our staff and our students. But um, that, the, the real uh, aspect of this is the unconventional approach. It's not so much unconventional, but knowing what, talking to students. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an example. If you start a chess club, the first thing we're gonna, that uh, we ask of you is, you know, get your membership going, get, you know, get a sanction and everything by ASB, and then create an Instagram account. So it's always Mesa's, you know, chess club, Mesa's, you know, interact, Mesa's, you know, whatever the club is. Because what we want is we want the students to learn to promote themselves. Uh, we cannot make, you know, they don't, look, they don't look at flyers. You know, parents look at flyers, but parents don't. And it's those social Instagram uh, postings that allow students to say, oh, I did not know that they had this. So every sports team has one, every club has one, and it's part of them to be officially sanctioned. Uh, and that's really the real churro. Uh, they themselves promote each other, which when we do club rush, the first thing people do is like scan this QR code and you can see what are the things that we've done in the past. Oh, wow. That uh, sounds like you're developing um, um, agency within your students. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, the interesting part about it is that um, they, for uh, one time I had a student that came up to me and said, you know, because the official Instagram account of the school is ran by us, the adults, the magnet coordinator, myself, 
And uh, one student just said, can you guys start to use Canva? Canva has a lot better uh, flyers. And we're like, what? What's, <laughs> what do you mean? And so eventually we made him a little partner and said, hey, can you post something? Because what we realized is that where we went top down as far as our information, they would go sideways. They would add little bubbles. They add little things that mm -hmm. are more creative. So, yes, uh, we do make it about them. And once in a while we will make them as guests because they think that the Instagram the official school Instagram is not as exciting as theirs. Yeah, of course it's not because, you know, this is the uh, the world we live in. Yes. Where we rely on our students to help yes, us become absolutely. more creative. Right? Yes. So what are um, the most significant challenges you face as a school principal, and how do you address them? So uh, I, I think, well, behavior is always an issue, right? And I think that, you know, I mentioned going back to the core values of when a student misbehaves in class. Um, our school does not have a dean of discipline. Hmm. So we, instead of us having a dean, we have an extra, we pay, we use those monies to pay for a counselor. So <clears throat> instead of having three counselors, we have four. And so now when a student misbehaves, a uh, student is having some sort of issue in the classroom, it, the first referral is to their counselor. And the counselor is supposed to guide, supposed to assist. Of course, if they do something that is illegal, something that is unsafe, then one of, the one of the three administrators has to address it. We have to document, we have to do the district policy and procedures in regards to that. I think the, the, the matrix that the district has as to what falls category one, two, or three kind of issue is critical. And we make that public to all of our students. We make it to all of our parents. When a parent comes in and something happens, that's what we do. That's always the biggest issue, <clears throat> you know, the vaping you know, the, the harassments, that kind of deal. But by far the biggest challenge as a principal is balancing my time that requires me to submit the compliance documentation, all the mandates that we have to have on a monthly basis, but more importantly, getting into the classroom and supervising instruction. <clears throat> Every Tuesday we have to lead some sort of professional development. We're supposed mm -hmm. to support something. Well, you can't just go and do it with the module. You have to actually have some data yourself, observations that you've done. That's, hard, but that's probably the hardest part, is being able to get into a classroom continuously, daily, if not weekly, because that's really where the heart of the school is at. Right. It's almost like you have to block <clears throat> off time just to go into the classrooms. Right. And, and, and the thing about the, the blocking of the time is oftentimes when a parent shows up with uh, an urgent matter or yeah, they student. Don't, they don't get it. <laughs> they don't. And you have to stop and do that. Correct. So I want to go back to the, the dean thing. Yes. And so how long... Have you guys gone without a dean? From day one. From day one? From day one. And how did that come about? <clears throat> well, it came about, <clears throat> excuse me, part of my experience, uh, you know, having worked in uh, operations, mm -hmm. is that oftentimes whenever I was asked to go to a school to assist with an irate parent about a student who had done something inappropriate and now ne needed to face discipline, uh, Oftentimes, I would ask the parent, like, so when the school contacted you, who contacted you and what was the steps? And they would always say, no one contacted me. Mm -hmm. They just told me about what he did now. Mm -hmm. So it was more like you could see things building up, but they had not been that co parent contact. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the idea was, as the more I saw it and the more I dealt with this, uh, deans at the schools, is like deans always had the punishment that was going to be you know, put in place, mm -hmm. whatever that may have been. And, it was, and I kept thinking of the tiered levels of intervention that we talk about when we're dealing with behaviors. So it seemed like there was never the, the tiered levels. It was never happening. But counselors did. 
And so that's where it came about. So when we f- sat down and we, you know, developed, you know, who was going to handle what and whose job's duties it was, that was the one thing is we will not have a dean. Of course, could you go in and eliminate a dean position from a school now? The answer is that would be an interesting question and, and problem to have. Right, because I was um, <coughs> curious to know if some of your uh, peers have eliminated their dean. You know, not, not that I not that I know of, but it's also not something that I go around telling people because they <laughs> always say, well, that's not a good idea because then that you're dealing with all the behavior problems. And the answer is yes. Uh, it, the, the responsibility does fall on, on an admin to deal with those category one or twos <laughs> that require us to go above it. Right. It's just but you have a different approach. Correct. Of, 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 but your, your, your approach is more of just um, um, building the, 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 the student up rather than just breaking them down by just giving them pure punishment. Correct. There is no punishment. Actually, it's more of a reflection, and that reflection happens with their counselors. That, that sounds um, fantastic. Um, is there an inspiring student or staff story you would like to share with us, or can you describe any memorable success stories or achievements from your time as a principal that made a significant impact on the school community? Yes. Um, um, this young lady, uh, she's. Um, it's a story of a young lady who... Um, was very good about you know you know talking about social media and the importance of you know online safety and all of this stuff, and so part of her uh, when she was in eleventh uh, grade, uh, she came to us with the idea that during digital citizenship, uh, could digital citizenship be a year-long project, and so we're like, sure, what would that look like? What I did not realize is that <clears throat> through the different. Uh, um, classes and, and clubs, there was a club called Girls Who Code. And so Girls Who Code is essentially a group of young ladies who come together to learn how to code. It's, the, it's an organization, Girls Who Code. What happened is that she had attended uh, a little symposium, and there that idea just clicked in her head. And this is a young girl who would never even come up to you and say, hey, I want to do something. But because she went on this field trip with this club, Girls Who Code, she came back and wanted to take it on. And I got to tell you, uh, eventually, you know, she was, you know, part of the uh, district's digital citizenship um, promotion because of what she had done all year long. And so she created a, a website where in an Instagram account where it was about posting good stuff, good feeling, motivational stuff. And you know, before you knew it, it wasn't just our community. She had people from all over the country and, you know, some from out of the, you know, I mean, from uh, uh, throughout the world. And essentially, it was more about, hey, post something positive. And so she took it upon herself and, you know, to, to which has led her to, you know, be a computer science major at USC now. That's great. But the thing about it is, is it, it was simply a club that exposed her to something. And then she came back and it was the teacher's. Mm-hmm. who said, yes, let's do this. It was the support of the, the leadership that said, yes, let's do this. This is good. So something that we, we do once a year in October became a, something that we did weekly, monthly. And you can see the difference in our postings of what our kids do when, in relation to digital citizenship. Oh, that's great. Um, your school is a full inclusion school, correct? Yes. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about how that decision was made to, to become a full inclusion school? And then part B to that is what advice or recommendations are, are you, would you give to any other principal who's considering it? Right. Uh, well, first of all, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and it requires for you to really 
uh, explain yourself to the special ed department mm -hmm. and the staff as to how it's going to be. Uh, full inclusion requires team teaching, which requires a lot of trust. Um, I'm sorry. I need to talk about what inclusion means. Sure. Um, so inclusion means that you, you do not have any special day programs. We do so, not have any special so day classes. Every student with an IEP is in, um, in a, in, for lack of a better phrase, a regular classroom. Correct. Okay. So uh, continue. Full time. Full time. Uh, so yes. Uh, so what happens is uh, the vast majority of our students uh, fall into the RSP and uh, some of the uh, special day class in the sense of behavioral problems. Uh, you know, out of, you know, the 108 students that we have, you know, I can tell you like five of them have, you know, what they call one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. Some of that's with them because of safety or reasons that are called for. So I think the, the most important part with full inclusion is the fact that uh, resource students, uh, students with autism, uh, anything that is kind of socially awkward, um, they have the capability they have demonstrated the capability to do the work. It's just not at the pace in which we may be requiring others to do. So part of this is going back and saying to whenever a parent gets accepted and they have an IEP, and of course we don't you know, discriminate or say, no, you can't because you have. The first thing we do is we have to sit down and do the IEP, the transition IEP, to see what the student's individual education plan calls for. We do not turn them away. Simply, we explain to the parents that they will be in their regular math class, regular history class, regular, everything is the same. However, we do offer a lab time where the resource teacher will pu pull that student aside and work in a much smaller setting. But the vast majority of the day is spent in with the regular uh, classmates. The interesting part about it is we, we track how those students do. We look at their attendance. We look at their you know, five-week report. They have what they call a passport. And in the passport, it has what their IEP goals are and what their benchmark is for that reporting period. So that's, that was the key in giving that to our resource teachers. This is what you're going to do. You're going to have to create this with the student, and then you have to pass this on to the teacher in which they go in. So a regular ed teacher is never surprised by what it is that this child needs because the IEP is a legal document that is very lengthy. So we essentially create a pamphlet of each student's profile. We call it the, you know, the student's IEP passport. And the student knows you've got to give this to your teacher and why you give it to them. Um, and again, these are very you know, highly functioning uh, you know, students. And then our resource teachers are, are students who you know, definitely need a lot of modifications. But the teacher goes into the classroom when the student gets service. And they make it a point to not be around that student, but rather just support in general. So they always see the, the, the second teacher in the classroom. And uh, that requires time that is allocated from our, our, our school plan to provide for some time for the teacher in the regular ed and special ed class to meet. Mm -hmm. So you have to build that in. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Uh, and then last but not least is the parent. The parent has to buy in. Um, in the entire time that I've been there, I, I can tell you it's been like five students whose parents said, you know, this doesn't work. They need to be in a full inclusion class. Only five. Only five. And, 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 and you, if you look at the achievement, it's up there. It's not like it's any different than other students, but they do have an IEP. That, that's encouraging the only five because that tells me that parents want yes. their, their children in, in, in to, to access as many classes and clubs and activities as their, their non-special ed peers. And I think the key there here is, Keith, is the fact that the students don't feel like they're any different. Because other kids get, other kids go to labs for other things. They go to their science lab. They go to this other lab. So it's not like, oh, I have a lab, and therefore there's no letter attached to them that says your special needs. 
that net letters was attached to them back when we were growing up. Correct. Yes. We knew all the kids who yes. were special ed. They were in the back, and then we, the, the two um, schools never, never crossed. Correct. Okay. So what advice do you have for aspiring educators who may be considering a career in school administration or a leadership role? My advice, first of all, is that you, you cannot be in the office. You have to be out there with the students. Uh, the students are your – you don't need to wait for a, a survey to find out what, what you're, uh, what's going on at the school. Uh, you have to find a way to manage your time to do the paperwork when the students are not there or before school begins or right after school. Um, my advice is simply that. My advice is you've got to always have a book in your back pocket that is inspirational because it can be very draining on you. And the more that you hear the negativity, the more you feel as though you're digging a bigger hole. The reality is, you know, that book, you know, Who, who Fills Your Bucket, is critical. Uh, you have to have people around you that are going to keep it real, but also are going to say, hey, we're doing a good job. So whenever we have our leadership team meetings on Mondays, the first thing everybody has to share is not what they're overwhelmed with that week. They have to share, they have to share with, with us something that is positive in what, in what they're working on so that others can hear it. And then that sets the content for all the other things that they need to do. Okay. Great. Um, so we're running out of time, and something that we like to do is to, to ask three quick questions, which we call a speed round. Go for it. You ready? Yes. What is one book that all educators should read? Definitely, if you don't feed the teachers, uh, they'll lead the students. Uh, this is a great book for administrators because it has nothing to do with education. It has to do with setting up uh, your support for your staff. Uh, and it comes down to how can you be helpful and reflective when they come up to you with issues that you may feel as though they may be insignificant, that they are of big importance to them. So the idea is, what can I take off their plate right now that would make them feel as though I just handed them a meal? But more importantly, you know, what are you doing to reflect on what they're asking for you? So you have to feed them. And uh, uh, a teacher being hungry is simply sometimes they just want, need a pat on the back. Great. What do you do for self-care? So I, I cycle. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to, uh, you know, ride my bike uh, 14 miles uh, at least two times a week from my home in Long Beach to my work. Uh, it just requires me to bring in my clothes. Uh, but what's interesting is at the end of the day, uh, 5 o'clock, I know I have to leave. I, and, and that's the thing right there, Keith, is, you know, we talk about self-care, self-care, right? But I know that whenever I ride my bike, I have to leave by 5 o'clock or it's going to get dark. Right. So, and then I realize every day I could leave at 5 o'clock, but I don't because I have my car. <laughs> so that's a form of self-care because you're, like, you're forced to like, do that. And you've, you need to force yourself to have time where you do something that's good for you, whatever that may be. Great. And last uh, question, what inspirational quote do you live by? Um, I live by the quote, and it's in, in, in Spanish because my dad is the one that always, always, you know, told us about it. And it simply says, siempre hay que querer ser el mejor, pero nunca creerse el mejor. Translated, it means you must always strive to be the best, but never believe you are the best. Gabriel, um, I appreciate you sharing your insights and what you have learned and your experience. Um, I believe our audience is a bit smarter today. So thank you for your time. No, thank you for having this opportunity to share what I've learned. Okay, Gabriel Duran. Thank you.